At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Welcome back to Food 52's Burnt Toast Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Can you believe that Burnt Toast has been a podcast for three seasons and we've never done an episode on Burnt Toast? Well, that's changing now. Today, we'll talk about what goes on inside our toasters. From one to two-sided heating filaments to Pop-Tarts and finish-style dunking toasts. We'll even give you a few recipes on what to cook if your toast burns. But first, did you know that Food 52 wasn't always called Food 52? It was actually Burnt Toast. <laughs> uh, a name that's uh, beloved to us still. And we named it Burnt Toast because Meryl and I are both, I would say, quite experienced cooks. And yet we both burn toast ceaselessly. That's Amanda Hesser, co-founder and CEO of Food52, reminiscing about when she and Meryl Stubbs began a company to bring home cooks together. The thing about naming it Burnt Toast was that it was a way to instantly make people feel comfortable and that it was, this was not a place for you know, snobby cooks or expertise or elitism. It was a place where if you're passionate about this but you still make mistakes like we do, you could feel welcome. At the time, I didn't actually have a toaster. I was very toaster resistant because I don't want to clutter my countertop. And in New York, the countertop real estate is highly precious. And so I would always broil toast. And if you're a natural toast burner and you do it under a broiler, you have a lot of charred uh, bread material in the end. Well, that's why a broiler isn't called a toaster. You know, you want a little burn on your toast, right? You want a little burn just around the edges because you want that sort of caramelization that I think goes beyond just gently brown. And it's sort of hard to achieve that. And it's it's such a it's such a moment, a very brief moment in time where that is perfect. And then either it goes overboard or you've done it a little less and it's like not quite what you want. And I sort of I guess that's what like why we all like cooking, right? Because it's a little unpredictable. And, you know, every time you think you've mastered something, it, it sort of shows you that, well, in fact, you know, you still have to pay attention. For little toaster history, we talked to Edward Tenner of the Smithsonian. He's been dubbed the philosopher of everyday technology and is considered one of the foremost toaster historians. In the early days of toaster history, many toasters were one-sided. By that, I mean the heating filament was only on one side, so you had to flip the toast manually for evenness. So when did toasters find themselves first in the U.S.? The toaster, I have not found the, the first toaster, but the, the toasters became uh, really popular in the 1920s. And one reason for that was that the 1920s were a time of the extension of the electrical grid and the need of 
utilities to balance the load. So people were using their electrical supply typically for lighting at night. The utilities were very excited about appliances like vacuum cleaners and especially toasters, because toasters were considerably cheaper, more affordable, that people could uh, use to buy electricity during the day. So I can safely say that toasters may have kept the lights on? That's right. People in the Depression actually were very often willing to pay a premium for over-engineered goods that they believed would last a long time. How have toasters progressed over time? The additions, I think, now are, are mostly are mostly aesthetic. The frontier in toaster engineering appears to be greater evenness and consistency. There is uh, one recently introduced in Japan that has a distinctive technology that results in an overall level of brownness. Isn't there some charm in having some slightly burnt edges of toast? In Japanese aesthetics, there's also a sense of a, of a pleasing unevenness. There's a, this term wabi-sabi, things that look kind of old and cracked. I could see uh, maybe a further generation of Japanese toasters that would give that wabi-sabi effect, that the toast would not have conventional stripes, but would, would be very pleasingly uneven, the way you would prize a, uh, an, uh, let's, let's say, an old teacup from the uh, tea ceremony. How do you feel about toasters that have the novelty of toasting an impression or, uh, you know, some kind of image onto the piece of bread. I haven't seen those yet. Are they on the market? I think of it more as a kind of a gag gift um, because you're not getting the best piece of toast out of there. And is the image something that you can program in or you buy it with, with one image? I've actually seen toasters that now have selfies. Have Yes, my co-producer is showing it to me. The selfie toaster where you can get your face burned onto a piece of toast. I had no idea. I'm still impressed with the frontiers of, of toast. But that, of course, that's also very consistent with trends in marketing. I can think of nothing more uh, massively customized than, than looking at your face or a, a loved one's face every every morning and devouring it. There's a classic photo of President Harry S. Truman and his lovely wife, Bess, in their apartment when he was a senator in Missouri. He's making a piece of toast in the foreground while Bess is looking on from the stove. It may have been a press opportunity in hopes of connecting with the greater American populace, or possibly he was just hungry. He was using a 1934 Toastmaster 1B5, which was considered the top toaster in America at the time. The best in Australia, on the other hand, is Breville. The Sydney-based home appliance manufacturer was founded in 1932. They became globally known when they created a sandwich toaster in 1974, which put their cookwares on the culinary map for decades to come. Phil McKnight and Catherine Respino from the company gave me a quick 101 on toaster science. Well, let's ask the most layman question there is, and can you explain how a toaster works? What you're trying to do is you're trying to raise the surface temperature of the bread that you're toasting now, this is a non-enzymatic reaction that changes the texture and the taste. So that Maillard reaction occurs at around about 158 degrees Celsius. Once that point is reached, then the toast changes colour. It dramatically changes its complete flavour profile. And then as the heat is continually applied, then the toast becomes darker and darker and darker until 
the toast ends up, you know, basically catching on fire, I suppose, if you were to, to go to an extreme. That, that's a great segue into my next question, was, which is how do people use toasters incorrectly? Generally, every toaster on the market right now is you have an interface or a selection dial that uh, allows you to choose a toasting level. What that toasting level really is, it's accessing a timetable within the toaster and then the timetable is a proxy for brownness. Now, the problem with that is that if I select toasting level three and I'm toasting uh, just generic white bread, the toaster will run for around about two and a half to three minutes. If I don't adjust the setting uh, and I put in a bread that's um, of lower mass or higher sugar content, which means it browns far more quickly than, uh, than the, the bread that I had in previously, then you end up with burnt toast. But when did bread products become too cumbersome for an ordinary toaster? Catherine Respino of Breville explains the long and short of it. If you can think of the time where, let's say, toast was evolving from just the uh, standard square shapes and sizes to uh, more diversity uh, and variety, so you might get different shapes, more artisanal breads, the addition of crumpets, English muffins, and bagels to people's diets, the slots, the standard size slots on toasters didn't really accommodate those. They were too narrow, and they also weren't long enough. And I think when toaster ovens first came on the market, they were exploiting uh, an advantage where they could, you could fit any kind of toast into a toaster oven. The great thing about that is that all you had to do was look uh, to see the brownness of your toast. That made it incredibly more simple to use uh, because in traditional toasters, you have to lift the toast up and take a look at it and then drop it back down. Is it because people are just impatient for toast? I don't know that they're, in, they're impatient. They just, they just want it to be right. Who knew that toasting would be so personal? Food 52's other founder, Merrill Stubbs, grew up with a father who had quite a belief system about what toasters should and should not do. Dare we call Michael Stubbs a crummudgeon? Although I, I eat toast for breakfast uh, every single day, just about, but it's the toasters that are the issue uh, or, or the obsession because you can make great toast out of a lot of different things if you have a decent toaster. Well, what makes a good toaster? There are two things a toaster should do. One is make toast that is consistently the same color and to to do it for more than eight months which is about the average life of a lot of cheap toasters these days price doesn't seem to have anything to do with the quality of toasters yeah, we're, we're certainly going to explore that paradox the best toasters uh, i ever had were they, there was a brand called toastmaster and they were just plain old they were chrome and that you had to push the toast thing down on the side and that turned it on and it had a you know how dark you want it single rotating button and that was it but they lasted forever toasters aren't just for toast either the nostalgia of ego waffles highlighted in netflix hit series stranger things and pop tarts and toastables still line supermarket shelves megpie's founder megan ritchie is trying something different she wants to take toaster pastries out of the toaster. Kellogg's Pop-Tarts had had a 32-year run of only increased profits from Pop-Tarts. They'd never gone down in sales for 32 straight years, so pretty much remained popular the entire time they've been out. 
And it's something that people just still really love and still want to eat, despite the fact that most people would, you know, consider them to be a treat as opposed to like a balanced breakfast. What do you consider yours? Ours is definitely a treat, but it's wholesome quality, real ingredients. So we don't use palm oil. We don't use any corn syrup or high fructose corn syrup. It's real fruit that we make into jam. It's a pie crust, like exactly the same recipe you would use at home. I think most toaster things were relegated to breakfast and they were bread or they they weren't something that was sweet and snackable. And then once the toaster pastry started, then it became, what else can we put in like the Eggo waffles or any kind of breakfast waffle? And then I think for a while you could do hot pockets in a toaster in like a, a, a specialized bag. And then maybe that all sort of changed when the microwave became really popular. You can't actually toast Meg Pies in a toaster. A toaster oven, yes. And that's because their icing isn't made with gelatin or stabilizers. It will melt and slide off, if not burn, in a toaster. Toaster strudels you put your icing on afterwards, and that's why. Do you feel like because of the past, the shape and form of what you make, uh, you've been put in this box that is toaster pastry? I think the biggest thing that has been difficult with our tart is the expectation of the general public that all toaster pastries should cost 25 cents and tastes like cardboard. And the issue that we've had with that is that when you use real butter, when you use real fruit, you can't get anywhere near that cost of, of, you know, your mass market toaster pastry, but then you also have a much better flavor profile. And surprisingly, because people love toaster pastries so much, and it's such a nostalgic thing, there's a large percentage of the population that doesn't want it to taste better. They want it to taste the way they remember their tarts tasting when they were a kid. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hardworking hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. Toast is so evocative what we're accustomed to growing up eating. Trinary Home Bakery in Michigan's Upper Peninsula has been selling dunking toast for nearly a century. Sprinkled with cinnamon and packaged in a humble brown bag, it's not meant to be ostentatious. The crunch is simple yet comforting, as is the cold glass of milk or warm mug of coffee or cocoa you dunk it into. This has been an enduring custom for many Finlanders, as owner Andy Reichert explains. In 1928, the bakery was... Uh, opened. So now we produce our signature rye bread, of course, our six flavors of korpu in the Finnish language, dunking toast. And we make a gooey, luscious, wonderful cinnamon bread. How did this traditional toast begin? Where this product came from were ocean-going vessels from Scandinavia backing up to the, you know, what, 1300s, 1400s. They would produce a completely dry, twice-baked, you know, slice of toast that they would bathe in cinnamon and sugar, cinnamon for the natural preservative effect and sugar for the extra caloric value, 
so that seagoing sailors and passengers had sustenance on their way to the New World. And if you nibbled on this for 90 days at sea, you were probably pretty fond of it. There was a time when everyone made this style of dunking toast here. Every grocery store, certainly every bakery, many of the pasty shops, many churches for fundraisers or school groups or American legions, VFWs, and so on. And over the years, they've kind of faded away. Uh, it's kind of a challenging product to make, so I think they may have lost interest in the technique of how to make it. What's so complex about the process of making your toast? So you need a highly structured dough that will make a good piece of toast that can, first of all, handle going back in the oven to be toasted completely dry. We've driven all the moisture out of it. So you need a, a protein strand in your dough that can handle that. And then once it comes out of the package, it needs to deliver A, on taste, but also on dunkability. So, you, you know, if you put it in a, in a cup of coffee or hot cocoa, and as quick as you pull, put it in, you pull it out, and it gloops off and falls in the bottom of the cup, that's a horrible experience. I have a cinnamon raisin in front of me right now. What are some of the other flavors, and why were they introduced? Cinnamon raisin is, is the newest. Just prior to that was vanilla toast. Cardamom is a spice that's very near and dear to Finnish people in particular, Scandinavians in general. Uh, our sugar toast... Uh, is just like our cinnamon toast, except it has no cinnamon. It appeals to, interestingly enough, largely a Norwegian audience and some Germans who like the uh, texture of toast and they prefer sweetness without cinnamon. And then our plain toast is similar to Zweibach, which is a German delicacy of a twice-baked bread. It's so funny. I always thought of Zweibach as a... Uh baby food, because I think Gerber used to make it. That's correct, yes. And actually, um, you know, so Germans, like myself, my good German parents, both mom and dad, teethed me and my two sisters on Zweibach. And here in this part of Michigan, we hear it almost weekly where a customer will say, oh my gosh, I eat your product because my parents teethed me on it. I teethed my children, and my children are now teething their grandchildren on Trinary Toast. Whether you grew up with Trinary Toast or just being introduced now, most of us are weaned on toast in some form or fashion. But let's talk about how toast gets used in recipes. In terms of more contemporary recipes, there's always burnt toast ice cream from Food 52's Ice Cream and Friends cookbook. I even found a cookbook from the 1940s called Burnt Toast. It was written by the members of the Women's Auxiliary of California Babies and Children's Hospital and sold during their year-end fundraiser. The only toast recipe in this book is for cinnamon toast. There's an illustration on the introductory page, which shows a woman with her hands up in the air, toaster on the counter, wavy lines emitting from it, signifying that she's acutely aware her toast is burning. But sometimes, burning toast is part of the process. While putting this episode together, I had the opportunity to talk to Ruth Rogers, the legendary chef of River Cafe in London. She told me about a revelatory bruschetta she enjoyed in Italy. Where did you pick up this trick for deliciously crusty bread that's brown but not burnt? So I went to Florence and we went to a little trattoria on the Borgo San Jacopo. And as I often do it in Italy, they brought us a, a piece of bruschetta. It had been lightly rubbed with uh, garlic. And then it had uh, the new seasons just pressed 
olive oil. And I just can close my eyes and remember that moment because there was such a kind of incredible flavor and taste of the bread, the tiny hint of garlic, and the olive oil. And I thought, this is just three ingredients. There must be something else in there. Did they put, you know, chilies in the olive oil? Or did they put, you know, something else on the bread? Or how did they make the bread? And uh, I wanted to know more. So it sounds like that something else was the toasting of the bread. What kind was it and how was it done? That one was a, a Tuscan sourdough loaf, uh, which, you know, has very little salt in it. And it is a very coarse texture. There's a little tiny utensil that you can get in Italy that I still have, um, which is a, a kind of very thin piece of aluminium with a handle and a tiny grill over it. You can grill a piece of bruschetta on top of it, a piece of bread um, on top of that. And it was grilled dark, not black, you know, not burnt. When we do it in the River Cafe, you know, it's, it's sometimes, you know, toasting a piece of bread is the hardest thing to do because leave it too long and it gets black, um, don't do it long enough, and it, it tastes like sort of bread and not toast. So how do you get it to that exact point of being perfectly toasted without being over-toasted? I mean, perfection is not what we're aiming for. You know, you don't want to get too serious about grilling a piece of toast. But if your toast gets seriously burned, then what? Thankfully, Jennifer McLagan, chef and author of Bitter, A Taste of the World's Most Dangerous Flavor, proposes a few ways to harness the power of burnt bread. Just because there's something that's got bitterness in it doesn't make it bitter. It just makes it more complex and interesting to eat. I think caramel is a super great example of why you want some bitterness. Um, you know, because if you take the sugar to exactly the right point, it's still sweet, but there's an undernote of bitterness that makes that caramel more complex and mu much more interesting to eat than just if it was sweet. When did you come to appreciate burnt toast? I think I've always liked bitterness, right? I've never had a super sweet tooth, and I do like that touch of burnt because usually I would say most of the time when I'm having toast, I'm putting something sweet like jam on the top. So I really do like that combination of toast that's very well toasted. I hate toast that is kind of just like warmed up bread, really well toasted. And then with something sweet and often maybe something salty, like a salted butter, you have that salt, you have the bitterness, and then you have the sweetness of the jam. In Paris, Jennifer was enjoying a tasting menu by Chef Pascal Barbeau of Lestrance. When she got to the soup course, and they asked us what we thought it was, and we actually had no idea. There was kind of this mushroomy, bacony kind of flavor. Well, that's what I thought it was, and it was burnt toast. And I thought, wow, how weird is that? And then when I thought about it, you know, it's probably not that odd at all. It was probably something that people made. They, they didn't throw bread away. They used it in every way they could. So by toasting it, it gave it more flavor and adding it to a, a soup, um, preferably like a good homemade chicken stock, it adds this kind of depth and interest to the soup. Because burnt toast is the best thing since warmed up bread. Well, warmed up bread's not good. Burnt toast is excellent. Sometimes burnt toast is complicated, a real point of reflection. Kathleen Flynn, author of Burnt Toast Makes You Sing Good, a multi-generational memoir about her quirky Midwest family and their relationship to food, learned life lessons from a dysfunctional 
toaster. My parents always had this saying, you know, burnt toast makes you sing good, and they would say it often, and it became kind of this metaphor, you know, that it's a positive thing. Like, if you go through something bad, if you don't like burnt toast, eating burnt toast is a bad thing, that there's still something good that comes out of it. And so I really thought that was such a apt description of my family. They went through really hard times. I mean, a big chunk of this book takes place in the Depression era. And and I just felt like it was sort of the statement of the optimism that really ran throughout my whole family and that I think shaped me in, in so many ways as an individual. So it seems like it's just about toast, but it's really about so much more. So did you come to appreciate burnt toast? Not really, no. <laughs> I still don't really like burnt toast. I don't mind it. I will still scrape off a little bit of blackness if I have burned things. I prefer my toast lightly toasted. We've heard from a lot of toast aficionados, engineers, historians about the evenness. Yeah. I mean, that's what you're going for, like, say, for instance, with a marshmallow, right, over a over a fire. There are the people who love burning it, like getting it black. But I really am one of those people who will sit there very patiently and try to just get it browned evenly all the way, all the way around, like just very carefully. So then are you patient for toast in the morning? No. Because <laughs> in the morning, I very often am still not completely caffeinated. So my patience level is, is lower than normal, which my husband can verify. Is it true or not true that burnt toast makes you sing good? I will say that all of us kids who ate all that burnt toast when we were kids, we all can sing. We're not like the Von Trapps or anything, but, you know, we can all like carry a tune. I think, you know, I, I grew up in Baptist choir and and I, I still completely surprise people when they actually hear me sing because I can really belt one out if I need to. Toast and toasters have played a part in many people's lives. They've even influenced the technology you may be using to listen to this podcast right now. In the early years of the computer revolution, the most popular screensaver was the flying toaster. Think about it. The next time your morning bread pops up, intermittently singe, not all is lost. The past is the past, the toast is burnt, but there's always more bread to be had. Thank you to Food52, my co-producer Jordan Warner, and Nick Rad and Michael Comite at HeadGum for recording. Music by Joshua Rural Dobson. And thank you for listening to this third season of Burnt Toast. I hope you enjoyed throwing tomatoes, tapping maple trees, and waiting in line for food as much as I did. We're going to pop a bottle of champagne and burn some toast to celebrate. Cheers. Cheers.